Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. Dr. Jeffress is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. If you could thank God for any one thing, what would be of at the top of your list of things you're most grateful to God for? Perhaps it would be your mate. Perhaps your children or grandchildren would come to mind. Perhaps, honestly, the thing you're most grateful for is a dramatic answer to prayer that came at just the right time. Paul wouldn't have hesitated to answer that question. The thing he was most grateful to God for, the thing he could never get over from the moment that he confronted the risen Christ on the road to Damascus until the time he drew his last breath with the swing of a Roman sword, Paul could never get over the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had shed his blood to take away Paul's sin and that he would never have to fear the wrath of God because of what Christ had done for him. He never got over that fact, which is why it's no surprise that when he began his letter to the church at Ephesus, he began with a eulogy for what God had done for him. The eulogy we saw last time isn't something you just reserve at a funeral. It literally means words of praise for somebody living or dead. In God's case, it's somebody's living. And the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1 are Paul's eulogy. Eulogia is the Greek word, words of praise to God for what he has done. Remember we said Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 14 is just one long sentence in the Greek text, but people have tried to break it up and outline it, and one way to do it is blessings that come from God the Father. It's God the Father who has selected us. It is God the Son who has saved us, verses 7 to 12. And it is God the Holy Spirit who secures us, verses 13 to 14. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1 as we look at this eulogy for God. Now, last time we looked at the blessings that come from God the Father. God the Father who selected us for salvation. And under that heading, there are two things that are mentioned in verses 3 and 4 that God the Father has done for us that we should never get over. First of all, God has chosen us. God has chosen us. Now, that's a loaded word. People get all upset and mad. I'm not sure why, but when you talk about predestination and choosing, they get upset. This is a blessing from God. It's a mysterious blessing. We don't understand it, but what we do understand is this about God's choosing us. Our salvation did not begin with us. It began with God. We don't just wake up one day and say, gee, I think I'd like to be saved today. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. Jesus said in John 15, 16, for those of you who have a problem with choosing and predestination, listen to what Jesus said. You did not choose me. I chose you. Could it be any more clear than that? John 15, 16. Our salvation begins with God. It's initiated by God. It's implemented by the Son. God chose us. 
1 John 4.10 says, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and gave himself as a propitiation, a satisfaction for our sins. Paul said it this way in verses 3 and 4 of Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Not only has God chosen us, God the Father has adopted us as sons. He has placed us into his family. And we saw last time this word, this phrase, adoption of sons, in verses 5 and 6, has nothing to do with gender. You know, God assigns our gender. He makes us male and female. And we don't suddenly become, if you're a female, you don't turn into a male when you go to heaven. You're not a son of God, you're a daughter of God. You're a child of God. That distinction remains. Uh, that's not the point of sons. It's not saying women become men. It's talking about not gender, but maturity. We are adopted into God's family, not as little babies with no rights whatsoever or few rights. We have full rights as a fully grown son of God. And that's why we can go to God boldly before the throne of grace. What is it that God the Father has done? He has chosen us, he has adopted us, put us into his family. And now we come in verse seven to the blessings from God the Son. The Father initiates the plan, the Son implements the plan. And there are four blessings related to our salvation by Jesus the Son that Paul mentions. First of all, it is Christ who has redeemed us. Look at verse 7. In Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. B.B. Warfield, the great theologian from Princeton Theological Seminary, said one time, Jesus has many titles in the Bible, but no title is more precious to the heart of Christians than the title Redeemer. He is our Redeemer. That word was especially important to Paul's audience. Remember when Paul wrote these words, six million slaves lived in the Roman Empire, six million slaves. And there was a word that referred to redeemed, ex agorazzo, redeemed, ex agorazzo. The agora was the marketplace where people would go to buy many things including slaves. And if you were in the market for a slave, you would go to the Agora uh, and you would see in the place where slaves were sold, you'd see men and women and children even being in shackles without clothing, placed on a pedestal. And people who were interested in buying a slave, they would go and they would examine the slave. They would poke and prod the slave like you would an animal to see if it met your specifications. And once you decided you wanted to purchase that slave, you would pay the asking price and you would take that slave out of the marketplace. Remember I said the word for marketplace is agora. X, the prefix, means out of. That word redeems means to pay the price to take out of the marketplace. And once you had that slave, what did you do? You didn't set the slave free. That slave was yours now. You were free to do anything you wanted to with it. You could work that slave to death. You could abuse that slave, torture that slave, molest that slave. You could slit its throat if you wanted to. That slave belonged to you. 
And the picture here is clear. When we are born into this world, we're not born as free people. Everybody thinks, oh, I'm a free person. No, you're not. If you're a non-Christian, you're not free. You're not your own. You are a slave to Satan. He is your master, and he has a terrible future planned for you. You and I were born into this world, born not spiritually neutral. We were slaves of Satan. We were enslaved to sin, and we couldn't break that cycle. And all that awaited us for not only this life but eternity was misery and separation from God. But God, for no other reason than the great love with which he loved you, Ephesians 2 says, he reached down and he paid the purchase price. He sent his own son, Jesus, to pay the price to redeem us, to save us from the penalty of sin. He has redeemed us. He has taken us out of the marketplace of sin. Why? So that we could serve ourselves? No, so that we might serve a new master, God himself. That is the picture of redemption, ex agorazo. Now, interestingly, that's a word that is used in Ephesians 5, 16, but it's not the word used here for redemption. There are six Greek words for redemption. The one that is used here is one that is only used here in the Greek New Testament. It's apolutrosis. Apolutrosis. It refers to paying the ransom for a hostage. Now, we all understand hostages right now, don't we? There are 210 hostages being held by Hamas right now. And they are bargaining for somebody to pay the ransom. We don't know what the ransom price is, but there will be a price for it, a price to relieve, release those hostages. In the same way, you and I are being held prisoner if we're a not a Christian. If we're non-Christians, we are being held by a terrorist, the ultimate terrorist, Satan himself. He is holding us hostage but Christ has paid the ransom price to deliver us out of the kingdom of Satan into the glory of God. And that is the word here. But whether we're talking about redemption, the purchasing of a slave, the freeing of a slave, or we're talking about paying a ransom to deliver a hostage, the idea is the same. God has done for us what we could never do. We could never come up with the payment to pay the ransom or to purchase our freedom. Christ has done that for us. By the way, what is our response to that? 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says, Do you not know you are not your own? You have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. You and I aren't free to live however we want to. We have a debt of gratitude we can never repay to God who has redeemed us. He has redeemed us. There's a second word to to describe what Christ has done. He has forgiven us. Look at verse 7 again. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. That word forgiveness literally means to carry away. He has carried away our sin. He has separated us from our sin. He no longer sees our sin. He has carried it away. There's a great illustration of this that the Israelites saw every year on the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The Jews have just finished celebrating Yom Kippur. It was on the heels of that holy celebration that this terrible invasion occurred. Yom Kippur, you know what happened on the Day of Atonement. The high priest, 
after making a sacrifice for his own sins, would take the blood of an innocent animal. He would go into the Holy of Holies. No man could go in there except the high priest once a year. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant that contained the Ten Commandments. There were cherubim, angels, a replica of angels on either side. There was the lid, the golden lid called the mercy seat on top of the ark. The ark was a picture of God's judgment. Day after day, God would look down and he would see his law, which his people had broken, demanding God's judgment. But once a year, the high priest would come in with the blood of an innocent animal and would sprinkle it on the golden lid, the mercy seat. And the picture was no longer did God look down and see the law that had been broken by his people that deserved punishment. The blood of that innocent animal covered the transgressions of the people. God no longer saw the law. He saw the blood of the innocent animal. And of course, all of that was a picture of what Jesus would one day do for us. The high priest had to come in year after year to keep making the same sacrifice. But Jesus Christ is the perfect Lamb of God who made that once for all sacrifice and has offered us eternal forgiveness. That was the picture of Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement. But that's not the only thing that happened that day. After the high priest had sprinkled the mercy seat, he would take a live goat he would place his hands on the head of that goat, and he would confess the sins of the people. And then after confessing the sins of the people, that goat would be set free into the wilderness. That goat was called the scapegoat. That's where we get our term scapegoat. The scapegoat would assume the responsibility for our sin, and that goat would be left into the wilderness to take our sins far away. It gives new meaning to Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God no longer sees you as a sinner. He no longer remembers the things you have done. Your sins have been taken away. Micah 7, 19 talks about what that means for us. He will again have compassion on us, the prophet said. God will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And how has he done that? According to his grace, verses 7 and 8, it says, which he lavishes upon us. God doesn't just sprinkle grace on our lives. He pours it out on our lives. That's the word lavish, to pour out generously. I don't care what sin you've committed, how many you've committed, how long you've committed them, you can't out the grace of God. The grace of God is sufficient because it's based in the blood of Christ. It is sufficient to forgive us of all our transgressions. What has Jesus the Son done for us? He has redeemed us, he has forgiven us, and thirdly, he has revealed his will to us. Look in verse 9 of Ephesians 1. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him. What does he mean he's revealed to us the mystery of his will? The mystery of God's will is not whom you're going to marry, how many children you're going to have, what vocation you're going to choose. Those are all things related to God's plan for our life. We call it the will of God. It's God's plan for our life. That's not what he's talking about. 
No, a mystery in the Bible is a truth that has been previously hidden that is now capable of being understood. Part of the mystery of God's plan, Paul talks about further in Ephesians 3. It's the idea that Gentiles, people like you and me, could be joint heirs with Jewish believers. We could share an inheritance with our Jewish believer friends. Uh, that was unheard of, the idea that Gentiles could be joint heirs. That's what the mystery of the church is that Paul talks about. But I think he has something else in addition in mind here. He said the mystery of his will is this, verse 10, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ in heaven and things on the earth. That word summing up means to add up a column of figures and getting the result. It's the adding up of all things. What he's saying is we're able to see how all things are working together in the earth. The things that have been, the things that are, the things that are yet to come, they're all adding up to one conclusion, and that is the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming to return just as he promised he would to reward the righteous and condemn the unrighteous. All things, everything in this universe is all about Jesus Christ. He is the sum of all things. Not only has he revealed to us the mystery of his will, but finally, Christ has given us an inheritance. In him we have also obtained an inheritance, verse 11, having been predestined according to his purpose. <clears throat> when a loved one dies, many times they may choose to leave you an inheritance, a gift. Um, Amy and I just recently went over our wills to, again to make sure they were what we wanted. Now, we're not going anyplace that I know of anytime soon. But we just wanted to check and make sure it accurately stated what we want done with our possessions. And we have left something for our children and for our grandchildren. Now, Julia, uh, I, I don't think I've even talked to you about this, but there's some things you'll receive immediately when we die. But there are other things that will come later in life. And it's the same thing with those of us who are believers. The moment we become a Christian, there are some immediate benefits we receive. A pardon from our sin, the supernatural peace of the Holy Spirit. There are some things we receive immediately, but there are some things that are still future, which leads to what the Holy Spirit does for us. And that is the blessings from the God, the Holy Spirit. There's one blessing he mentions. The Holy Spirit has secured us. The Father has selected us. The Son has saved us. But it is the Holy Spirit who has secured us. Look at this in verses 13 to 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Now, that's a mouthful, but this is the best part of the deal. What is it that the Holy Spirit does? He has sealed us. What does that mean, he has sealed us? In the New Testament, a seal was used for three things. First of all, sometimes a seal was used to authenticate an object. 
to authenticate an object. If a king or an emperor were going to send a decree, the way you would know it was authentically from that ruler was it would have his seal on it. Now, a seal on a document was a little piece of wax that the one in authority would stamp with his insignia ring, and that insignia ring would make an impression on the wax that verified, authenticated, this is an official document. Now, in the same way, the Holy Spirit has been impressed upon our lives. It's a way to authenticate that we are really who we say we are, a child of God. How do you know what's the best evidence of whether or not you are truly saved? It's whether or not you possess the Holy Spirit of God his mark on your life. Romans 8, 16 says that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Well, how do I know if I've got the Holy Spirit to know that I'm a Christian? Well, there are fruit. There's evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things are in the process of becoming new. It doesn't mean we become perfect the moment we're a Christian, but there are signs of new life. There's a new desire to please God. There's a new desire to read His Word. There's a new desire to want to be with God's people. Those are the evidence that we belong to Christ. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God. And so the Spirit sometimes, <coughs> a seal was used to authenticate an object. Secondly, a seal was sometimes used to make an object secure. Remember in Matthew 27, we've got the story of what happened Saturday after the crucifixion on, on Friday. Christ's body is wrapped, it's in the tomb, and uh, the religious officials started to get nervous. And uh, they said uh, to Pilate, Give us a Roman guard that we might secure the tomb, lest the disciples come and steal the body away and say he's risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first one. They knew Jesus was claiming that he would rise again, as we just sang about a few moments ago. And so Pilate said, okay, you have your guard. Now, the word there for guard refers to a guard unit, 16 men who would take eight-hour eight shifts guarding that tomb to secure it. And what they would do is they would take a piece of string, and they would stretch it across the tomb, and they would hold it in place with the Roman seal, that piece of wax that bore the insignia of the emperor. Now, could a tiny piece of thread <laughs> and a seal hold that tomb secure? Of course not. It was representative. It was symbolic. It was saying this tomb is being guarded by the full force of the Roman government. And to get to this body, you're going to have to defeat the Roman Empire to do so, so to speak. That's what the seal did. The seal made an object secure, and the power behind it made the object secure. Now, that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. How do I know once I'm saved that I'll always be saved? How do I know that Satan won't invade my life and steal my salvation from me? How do I know that even I, through some bad choice or mess up in my life, won't negate the promise of my salvation? Here's how you know. You've been secured by the Holy Spirit of God. In John 10, 28 and 29, Jesus said, I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish. No man shall snatch out of my hand those whom the Father has given me. 
You are in the hand of Jesus Christ himself. You are secured by the Holy Spirit of God. And for Satan to get you, he will have to work through and defeat the Holy Spirit of God himself. And he's not about to be able to do that. That's what this promise is, to make an object secure. But thirdly, a seal was used as a mark of ownership. A mark of ownership. When I graduated from the seminary, I was youth minister here. See Tom Pulley back there. Your parents who are in heaven now, Ralph and Ruby, they gave me a graduation gift. And it was this embosser instrument. It was something that I could take and press on the fly leaf of any book that I owned, and it would make a mark, an insignia with my initials on it. And every book in my library could have that mark on it. And if somebody borrowed one of my books or I lent it to somebody, the way I proved it was mine was it had that emblem on it. In many ways, the Holy Spirit of God is God's mark that we belong to Him. So what good does that do me if I belong to God? What does that mean? Look at verse 14 again. The Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Now, stay with me on this. This is so great. That word pledge can mean one of two things. It can mean a down payment. In fact, in some translations, it says that an earnest of what is yet to come. You know how that works. If you go out and find a house you like and think you're going to buy it, you may think, this looks like something I'm interested in. Maybe it's a good price, maybe it's not, but I want to reserve it. So you put down $500 maybe of earnest money. Now, the fact is, you'd hate to lose $500 and find another house more appealing, but when you think about the price of a house these days, if you found a better deal, you probably would go ahead and forfeit that $500. No big deal in the big scheme of things. Well, let's say instead of putting down $500, you put down 99% of the purchase price of the house. You said, this is how sure I am. I want this property. I'm going to pay 99% right now. I can't imagine any circumstance that would cause you to forfeit 99% of the, forfeit of the purchase price. I mean, after all, you have made quite a commitment. But listen to me. The moment you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is given to you as a promise, a promise that the deal is going to be completed. And when God saves us, he doesn't give us $500 worth of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he doesn't even give us 99% of the Holy Spirit. He gives us the whole thing. We get 100% of the Holy Spirit of God, of God himself, the moment we trust in Christ. And that means God's going to complete his transaction with us. He's going to give us our full inheritance because he has given us everything. The other thing the pledge can mean, this Greek word, is an engagement ring. You know, if a guy says to a girl, I'd like to marry you, and here's a ring to show you that I'm going to keep my promise. <laughs> he may or may not keep the promise. He may forfeit the ring. But God has said to us, I'm giving you an engagement ring. I'm giving you a present. It's the Holy Spirit of God. 
And I promise the relationship is going to be consummated. There is going to be a wedding one day when you are joined together with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. He's the ring that signifies God is going to give us our full inheritance. Remember I said just a moment ago, we only have part of it now. I think the best part is still to come. Why do I say that? Remember, salvation has three aspects to it. There is justification. That's what happens immediately when you become a Christian. I put it on your outline. The moment you are saved, you are justified, declared not guilty. That means I am saved from sin's penalty. The moment you trust in Christ, you never have to worry that God is going to condemn you. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation awaiting those who belong to Christ Jesus. So I am saved from sin's penalty, but I'm also being saved from sin's power. That's sanctification. When I become a Christian, I start becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. The more and more I obey him, the more and more I say yes to God and no to Satan, I am being sanctified. I am being saved from sin's power. I'm saved from sin's penalty. I am being saved from sin's power. But thirdly, I will be saved from sin's presence. That's glorification. That's the part of the inheritance that is still to come. How are we going to be saved from sin's presence? By getting rid of these old bodies. These old bodies that are infected with sin. God says, one day... You're going to dwell in a new heaven, in a new earth, with a new body that is free from the sin, the sickness, the sadness of this life. Aren't you ready for that? That's what God has promised he's going to do. And the Holy Spirit is God's promise that he's going to finish the transaction. He's going to consummate the deal because of what he has already given you. Think of what God has done for you. God the Father has chosen you. He has adopted you into his family. God the Son has redeemed you. He's forgiven you. He's revealed to you the mystery of all of this stuff and what's going to happen. And he's given you an inheritance. And God the Holy Spirit has you secure and nothing can ever take God's promise away. The gifts and the calling are irrevocable. Paul said, I can never get all over that fact of all God has done for me. So what should be our response to what God has done? Do we just say, well, I got all the blanks completed on that line. I'll fold it up like some of you are doing right now. I'm going to just fold it up and put it in my Bible. What's for lunch, by the way? Anybody know what we're doing for lunch today? Is that how we respond? Paul dropped to his knees. He praised God for the spiritual riches that were his and would be his one day in heaven. And I just kind of think that truth ought to demand a response from us. You know, the Bible says God delights in the praise of his people. So as I was thinking about how do you close today's service, I thought, well, I'll close it the way Paul began his letter, by praising God. So I'm going to ask you to stand wherever you are all of us to stand together. There's an old hymn we used to sing a lot, 150 years old by Isaac Watts, At the Cross. That song, as I read it this week, describes perfectly the blessings 
that God has given to us. But it also describes what our response should be. There's a portion of that hymn that says, I give myself away to thee. It's all that I can do. And so what I'd like us to do is sing together this great hymn of praise to God. Make it your specific, your personal eulogy, words of praise to God. Thank him for what he's done and hopefully renew your commitment today to be his servant. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Tyler, come and lead us in that hymn of praise, would you? some of you who are already Christians, you may already know what it means for you to give yourself away to God, to renew your commitment to Him. It may be saying, some, saying no to something that's present in your life right now, no longer. 
or may be saying yes to something that God wants to do in your life. But to now is a great time for you to make that commitment, whatever it is, to follow God in your life. I realize there are others here today or watching online. Maybe you've never experienced God's forgiveness. Maybe you don't have the assurance that when you die, you're going to be welcomed into his presence. Salvation is not something we earn. It's a gift we receive. For by grace, you've been saved through faith, Paul said. It's not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. All you must do is confess your sins and believe that Christ paid the penalty for your sin and trust in him to save you. And today, if you'd like to do that, I encourage you wherever you are, here in our worship center, watching or listening to this message, to pray this simple prayer to God, knowing that he's listening to you. Would you pray this with me? Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have failed you and sinned against you. I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today, that you love me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me to take the punishment I deserve to take for my sins. And right now, I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.